On today's episode, I interview Zach Bitter, the world record holder for the 100-mile run and the world record holder for the 12-hour run. Zach's 100-mile world record time was 11 hours and 19 minutes, which is an average of 6 minutes and 48 seconds per mile. Yeah, Zach, I, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of yours. I'm an endurance runner, although saying that when talking to you, I mean, that's a very, when I say endurance athlete, it's a very different meaning from uh, the type, the sorts of stuff you do with 100-mile-plus runs. So, um, yeah, really an honor to get a chance to speak with you. I wanted to, you know, learn more about your story and what makes you so successful. Yeah, no, thanks thanks for following and uh you know it's uh it's something that is uh really interesting with the ultra marathon running stuff. Uh I certainly didn't ever think I was gonna be uh doing what I am doing now in terms of just frequency of racing and stuff like that. So it's been uh it's been kind of a fun fun path. Yeah. You say you you say you didn't always think you would do it. I mean what 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 changed? Can you tell me about that that journey? Um, yeah, you know, I've, I've always kind of been like dabbling in endurance since I was young. I, I, like in middle school and stuff, I found out pretty quickly that like the longer distances tended to be ones I could uh, do a little better at compared to my peers. Um, so I kind of like gravitated towards that as, as, uh, like a middle school age kid. Uh, you know, I think a lot of times with that age group, it's like you kind of gravitate to what, what's your best at. So, uh, yeah. um, you know, I, I kind of carried that into high school and competed in track and cross country there. And then um, uh, I wasn't like top in the state by any means or anything like that with uh, cross country and track. Uh, I did make the state meets for like the Division three school, um, which kept me interested enough, I suppose, to like kind of pursue running in college. Uh, and then I, I ended up running uh, two years of track and field and three of cross country at uh, Division three school in Wisconsin, uh, University of Wisconsin Stevens Point. Um, and there we were kind of, you know, we were a really good program for a Division three school, so we were often kind of in the mix of things at nationals and, you know, high up there at conference and things like that. Um, so at that type of, a, you know, 5K, 10K, 8K cross-country type stuff, I was pretty, like, middle of the pack amongst, um, you know, a good Division three program. Uh, and um, it was, you know, that's where I really kind of learned about, like, endurance sport, like, kind of the methodologies behind it and, you know, the training systems and all that stuff. Uh, before that, I was very much just kind of raw. I was just kind of, you know, I'd do what the coach would say, but, you know, mostly it was just, like, wait for the race and then run as hard as you can and then kind of repeat. <laughs> so in, in college, I kind of really got to know um, – you know, what it was like to kind of structure a training program so that you have speed workout, long runs, recovery runs, and all that, all that stuff. Um, but like my biggest, uh, I guess, point of, um, information that I kind of gathered from my, my collegiate career was that I, I really liked doing the long run and that that was kind of where I really felt my passion was at. And, you know, I, uh, my coach would always say, like, most of the guys on the team, they'll do the long run because they know it's going to make them better. But Zach just the long run just because he likes to do the long run. So for me, it was like always huh. kind, kind of like, well, maybe I should explore something longer than your, your traditional collegiate distances and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, I did a few like marathons with 
with like not a whole lot of and, and Zach, 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 to cut you off for a sec. So how how long was the long run you would do? Uh, in college, yeah, in college we would usually kind of like work up to about a 15 miler, and then we'd do a couple maybe 17 or 18 milers throughout the course of the season. But it's usually right around that like kind of 15 to 18 mile range, and gotcha. um, yeah, so that was about the longest. Uh, any of us would go for for that stuff and you know when you're looking at guys who are still kind of developing it's uh for for especially for like you know 5k 10k stuff that's probably about about the limit for most of them in terms of kind of making it sustainable um so you know it was always it was always interesting though I, i know like um after after college i was kind of sick and tired of speed work so i kind of stopped doing that i was just doing longer runs for the most part and then um did a few marathons kind of off of that type of a structure where i just increased my overall volume but really didn't do a whole lot of structured speed work um and you know i i I knew about ultra marathons when i was in college and i kind of started to follow it a little bit after college but i didn't really actually expect to do one until i was like probably you know out of my 20s and into my 30s just because I always thought like well you know that's kind of um something you do when you get older and you can't get any faster or something like that and um but in 2010 I actually was just kind of like looking for a race to do and stumbled across the North Face 50 mile uh, Midwest Regional Championships uh which was kind of right in my backyard at the time uh, and, uh, I was actually just going back to grad school and I saw that they had a, like a thousand dollar first place prize. So I was like, you know, a thousand bucks could go a long ways being back in grad school and stuff like that. So I was like, well, maybe I'll just try that and see what it's like if I hate it. And I'll, I'll just wait to do another one for a long time. And if I love it, maybe, you know, we'll see. Um, and I ended up winning it that year. So that kind of really gave me an insight as to what it was like to run an ultra marathon and kind of go through those, go through those motions. Um, but, uh, I was still a little conservative about it and I ended up not doing another one until 2011. It was actually the exact same race. Um, in that time I, uh, I finished second there, um, behind Matt Flaherty. I'm not sure if you know who Matt is, but he's a pretty solid, uh, ultra runner in in his own right. So, uh, I wasn't really, I wouldn't say I was disappointed in losing to him. Obviously, I wanted to win, but it kind of got me excited to do another one. So I did a couple more 50-milers that that uh, kind of late summer, or actually fall, early winter time frame, just to kind of um, see exactly, like, where our, my direction would go with it. And, you know, after that, I was I was hooked. So from, like, 2012 on, I basically had been racing um I wouldn't say year round because you definitely take some downtime or some off seasons, but I've been racing pretty much throughout the year um since then and focusing pretty much entirely on ultra marathons. Awesome. Awesome. And uh what would you say your 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 biggest accomplishments then? I know you had the 100-mile world record. You ran, raced that in 11 hours, 40 minutes, 55 seconds, which is 701-mile uh, pace. Would you say that's your, your top feat? Yeah, yeah. So that's actually an American record, not quite a world record. I'm currently about 12 minutes off from the world record, which is something I'm, I'm hoping to try, to try to get eventually. But um, I would say, yeah, that, that event – um, that one, and I had done that same event two years earlier and ran 11:47, uh, 
um, but kept on going after that. And then I got uh, – uh, they have there's – this, there's these, like, kind of weird events. They're called timed events. And uh, it's basically how far you can get in a specific time. So in 2013, when I finished 100 miles, I was told by the race director that I was likely going to get the 12-hour world record if I kept going. So I ran for another 13 minutes and got to 101.7 miles, and that's what the world record was. Um, oh, wow. Okay. So that... Yeah, yeah. It's often kind of confused, though, because everyone always wonders, well, why didn't you keep going in 2015 for 20 minutes and break that world record? And and uh, really, it was just because I was I was reeling pretty hard at that point. Uh, in yeah. 2015, and uh, my my hamstring was kind of starting to tighten up. So as soon as I crossed 100 miles, I was, you know, in my mind I was done. So I pretty much stopped there. Um, but uh, yeah, that's kind of how. But the, but but to answer your question, I, between those two events, those are probably my what I would say my most memorable uh, races. Yeah. Can you, can you talk more about the world record? Yeah. Yeah. It was actually kind of interesting. You know, I was I went into that race in 2013. I would say relatively unknown, or at least if if I was known by anyone, it was like you know some real diehard ultra fans who saw some of my races and you know were like, oh, okay, he could be good. Um, but I don't think anyone really expected me to run an American record that year, much less a world record. So like I was actually looking at it, you know, kind of like maybe it was a naive way, but uh, I had I had done a. 50, the 50 mile U.S. Championships earlier that year, um, and that was kind of going to be the end of my season. And I I got second there, and I was I recovered really fast. So my my first thought was, you know, I've always been kind of a curious, like experimental type sort. So my thought was like I had a couple 50 milers kind of near my house that were coming up the next two weekends, and I was going to do um, both of them and just see like how quickly I could recover and race and recover and race on for a three week period doing a 50 miler each weekend. And when I got kind of close to that first one, I felt so good that I was like, well, I'm not even going to do this one and I'm just going to wait for the next one and just really try to nail it. So, um, 13 days after the U S championships, I went to Chicago lakefront 50 mile and we had like perfect weather that day. And it's basically a pancake flat 10 K out, 10 K back. And then you just do that four times. I ended up running uh, five hours and 12 minutes there. And uh, that's what kind of got me invited to Desert Solstice in 2013. And in my mind, uh, the American record at the time was 11 hours and 59 minutes. And I thought, well, if I can do 50 miles in 512, 13 days after uh, what was supposed to be my A race, um, certainly I can go out in like a 545 and not be destroyed and then, you know, hang on for dear life, hopefully, and get in under 1159 and, I, I pretty much did did it exactly to that template through the first 50 miles. I came through 545, and then um, as I was in the second half of that race in 2013, I was I got to around mile 90, and I was kind of just running the math in my head, and I was I, I convinced myself that uh, that I I couldn't go a second. Per, it's on a 400 meter track, so you get all this data like pretty much an endless amount if you want it. And I remember looking at my splits because you could see it on a screen every time you pass the lap. And I remember thinking, I can't go a second per lap faster, but I can hold on to this pace. And that would have gotten me the American record in 100 miles by like six or seven minutes. So I was, I was willing to kind of accept that. I was like, okay, this is great. I'm, I'm probably going to get this, this record. And then it was right around that time, right around mile 90, 91, that the race director, uh, um, Nick Curry came up to me and said, 
uh, you're, if you stay steady, you're definitely going to break the 100-mile American record. Um, but by doing that, you'll probably have enough time to keep going. And if you keep going to 12 hours, there's this world record you could chase. And that was actually the first I'd ever heard of a 12-hour world record. So it was almost kind of like I had been focusing on this 100-mile American record the whole day. And at mile 90, 91, the race director kind of gave me a new little goal. And, and that was that really showed me kind of the mental aspect of the port of the yeah. sport because once I kind of had that refocus, I actually ended up speeding up like three or four seconds per lap, which, you know, less than a mile earlier, I told myself wasn't possible. So um, wow. that's kind of how the world record played out. I ended up coming through 100 miles in 11.47 and then uh, just kept going for that next 13 minutes and ended up covering another 1.7 miles before stopping at 12 hours. Wow. So 12-hour world record, that's 101.7 miles. Yeah. And that was in 2013? Yes, 2013 in Phoenix, Arizona at the Desert Solstice Track Invitational. Wow. It's amazing. So you think you can uh, you think you can beat that? Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> it's actually kind of funny. Um, I actually was – that event just actually was held this last weekend, and and I was out there going for the 100-mile world record, which is 11 hours, 28 minutes, and 3 seconds. And um, it was kind of goofy because, you know, I've done that event twice now. So I've, I've been pretty fortunate with weather and stuff the first two times. Uh, and this time it, got a, it was a little warmer than what it had been in previous years, but I kind of stuck to my original race plan that was kind of more or less based on previous attempts. Um, and I ended up... Uh, kind of overheating a bit and uh, falling off pace and and uh, dropping dropping out at about 100 kilometers because I could just kind of tell at that point I wasn't going to get the record. And I I didn't really want to put a hard 100-mile effort in my legs if I wasn't going to get that goal. So I, I thought I'd, I'd be better off kind of chalking up my losses and saving myself for a future race Um uh, especially because I have a, a race in the end of January that I got invited to by the Ultra Trail World Tour called the Hong Kong 100-kilometer, which is very much different than a track. It's like kind of technical, super steep, mountainous type things. Um, but this will, you know, I'll, I'll be able to kind of target that. But like with that said, I definitely feel like my training for Desert Salt this year was fairly on point um, and that I have a good shot at kind of being able to get down in, in that 11:28 range, if I have a you know a, a day that plays out in my favor and the weather's good and stuff like that, so um, I'll be de- definitely making more attempts at some fast 100 milers, uh, probably on track as well as maybe just some flat like road type courses as well. Awesome, and what what a, what a good conditions look like? I mean, what what qualifies good conditions? Yeah. I would say optimal. So like optimal is probably between 60, 65, somewhere in there. Um, you know, I'm typically running in the early stages of the race somewhere between like 6:30 and 6:45 pace per mile. Um, so like that's fast enough to kind of get your body heat up, but um, it's not so fast that you would want like 50 degrees, like you'd maybe seen like a marathon type of a scenario where those guys are usually probably looking for 50, 55 to be kind yeah. of optimal. Um, See, so yeah, I would say like probably like the year I broke the American record. Uh, for the second time, uh, it was probably right around, I mean, it's Phoenix, so, like, it probably started out at 40, and then it probably creeped up to maybe 65 at the heat of the day, 
but then it yeah. kind of started to settle back down, and it was a little more overcast that day too. So it's really weird. Like this this year at the race, it, I think it was the actual temp was about 78 at the heat of the day, but it was cloudless with direct sun exposure. So on the track, it was probably you know a little warmer than that. Um, but even even at 78, I would say that's probably pushing my luck a little bit to kind of go after my most optimal type of a strategy. Right. Um, and it, it kind of surfaced on me this time. I, I probably got a little dehydrated, which was what resulted in the heat overheating and things like that. So, um, you know, lesson learned, I suppose. Yeah. And, and why is 60 to 65 optimal when you're saying like 50 to 55 is optimal for marathon? I just think like you're driving your body heat up a little more when you're trying to run the effort that it requires to run a really good marathon. So, yeah. you know, with that, with that being said, like you might want, like if you could get it to be about 10 degrees cooler than what I would say optimal at the paces I'm trying to hit for a hundred miler, it, I, I think it probably, you know, it's just kind of rough estimates on my part, but like, I feel like that would probably equate to about the same, the, the lower intensity, less driving of the body heat for the pace for hundred miles is um, probably makes 65 feel about the same as 55 would if I was trying to run you know, like a, a sub six minute pace or something like that for a, for a marathon. Gotcha. So being, cause I, I feel like there's a bell curve to it. Like sprinters will prefer to be, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, like maybe 70 or something, you mm-hmm. know, keeps their muscles warm. They're only out there for 20 seconds. And then the longer the distance get, like gets up to maybe marathon, they prefer 50, 55. And it sounds like as you get past that distance, maybe you like the, the weather warmer again. So it's sort of like a, like a bell curve. Yeah. Yeah, I think so to some degree anyway. I think you want it to be cool enough so that you're not overheating, but you want you don't want it to be so cool that you're, you know, shivering or having to wear a bunch of extra clothes to try to keep warm. But with that said, I would I would take like 35-40 assuming it's not raining um over like 75-80 any day if I'm shooting yeah. for a time goal. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um well, Zach, that, that's amazing. Uh, the, the, the American records you've set, the world record you've set, and just your, you know, your, your progression and track record of all these uh, world-class races. So, um, you know, from, from relatively humble beginnings, I mean, uh, pretty, you know, solid middle school runner. You ran in high school, went to some state meets, and then in college, middle of the pack, D3 runner. And then you did a couple of marathons after college, and then somewhere between like after college to now, you miss a super ultra marathon runner. I mean, what? I'm, I'm guessing training is one of them. I know you have a particular diet, but in in your mind, I mean, is there a single factor you point to and say like this is really what what made that big difference for me in my in my mid twenties? Yeah, you know, I just think that like as you get, the further you get in distance, like especially within ultramarathon running, the variables for running are all still there, like they would be for a 5K or a 10K or a marathon, but they tend to shift a little bit. Um, So like there's a lot, like there's a lot more of, I guess, like kind of a mental component to 100 milers to kind of force your body through something as opposed to like kind of that that kind of quick sudden pain you're going to get in like a 5k where like I think like mushing through running 5k pace is a lot different than like kind of that that slow degradation that you're going to get throughout being out there all day in like a hundred miler. 
So I think that plays a role. And then it also kind of comes down to things like uh, nutrition and what you're eating. Like you also, you see it all the time in the ultra running sport where you get someone with like just an enormous engine, you know, it's like a sub 14 5k guy or like a sub 220 marathoner and they're, they're, you know, great athletes, but they are, they nailed the hundred mile distance because at some point in time they either can't eat enough to kind of sustain the intensity or they are trying to eat more than they can and they end up getting a stomach, stomach issues. And like, you know, you can be running quite a bit faster than someone, but if you have to stop in an aid station for 20 to 30 minutes, that's going to really, really close gap quite a bit. So, yeah. um, and that's not to say that there aren't some super fast, like sub marathon guys that have translated well into the hundred mile. There certainly are. Um, but it tends to be a little different. It's not quite as I would say linear where like, if you're a really good 5k runner, chances are like if you do the right training, you can kind of extrapolate that 5k PR and kind of get an idea of what your 10k potential is. And then you can kind of do that for the half marathon and the marathon as well. Um, and I think that linear kind of, or that, that like kind of, uh, um, that kind of like looking forward based on your, your previous like shorter distance time starts to skew a little bit once you get into the ultra distances. Um, and especially with the 100 mile and beyond, like 50 milers and 100Ks, fast guys tend to be able to, if they do enough of them, nail a few of those um, or nail them consistently in some scenarios. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily have to be like, you know, like a 212 marathoner to run a super fast 100 miler. You just have to be really consistent and you have to be able to kind of sustain that, like, that uh that kind of aerobic pace for just long long periods of time stay on top of digestion stay on top of things like um heating and or, or like overheating cooling and all that stuff hydration you know there's a lot more variables that need that the variables kind of skew a little more um because you can't you can't just kind of like rely on what you ate the night before to get you through a hundred mile race or eight i should eat and drink the night before to get you through kind of a hundred mile race at at your like optimal pace Gotcha. So, yeah, that takes me to my next question. I mean, one of the things that really fascinated me about fascinated me about you, and um, you know, I have, I have a similar background. So, I ran track in middle school, high school, and I was middle of the pack D three runner uh, at Brandeis. We had a pretty solid cross country team, and and us probably like you guys and every other team, we would carbo load before every race, so we'd have mm-hmm. tons of carbs, and then and then on any typical day, you know, the majority of our diet was from carbs. Um, and we didn't see any negative things from it because we're young and we're running all the time. But can you talk a bit about your diet? Because when I look at your profile, I mean, that that seems to be something that it stands out from a lot of endurance athletes and runners. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely kind of been um, a niche of mine where I've really explored. And, you know, I certainly wasn't the first person to try a high-fat diet, but within the ultra-running community, I've been probably um, – one of the guys who's uh, really kind of uh, like really fine-tuned it and kind of worked with it and tried to see what it would do over a long period of time. And, um, you know, I I actually started that back in 2011, right after I did those, those three races, three 50 miles I had told you about earlier. And um, really the kind of, the, 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 the the force the, the the driving fact force behind it was after those those 350 milers I started noticing um 
I was, I was a full-time teacher at the time, so I, I noticed a couple of weird things that I didn't necessarily see as sustainable. Um, and it was like I was waking up a lot at night to use the bathroom and just I'd have to, like, block off 10 hours of sleep to get eight kind of a thing and, you know, notice, like, big energy swings throughout the day, uh, like, inflammation and stuff like that started to kind of creep up. So I was I was a little bit uh, at a crossroads in terms of, like, is what I'm doing sustainable? Because obviously I don't want to completely drive myself into the ground and, and not be able to do sports or be active, you know, in my later years. So uh, my first thought was either I have to kind of reduce the level of volume and racing that I'm doing or I have to find out something nutritionally that's going to kind of remedy that, that some of those um, uh, side effects. And uh, I was really enjoying the training and racing at the time, so I didn't necessarily want to do that first. So I, I first kind of looked into nutrition and diet. And, uh, you know, I talked to, a, like, a whole bunch of different people about it that were kind of like, I guess, um, like the, kind of the early starters uh, of the modern, like, kind of high-fat movement. Um, and I was really fortunate to get uh, connected with guys like uh, Dr. Jeff Bollock and Dr. Stephen Finney, um, who are who are experts kind of in that world, and they were uh, th- they were able to point me to resources and things like that. And um, kind of around the same time, I started to listen to a whole bunch of podcasts while I was running. It's got kind of a way to justify the amount of time I was spending out there. I was like, well, if I can learn something while I'm doing this, then I'm then it's, uh, I don't feel quite as guilty for spending you know 20 hours a week just running. Um, and so I started kind of skewing the podcasts I was listening to towards like nutrition type stuff and. Uh, I kind of did a pretty deep dive into like the whole theory behind uh, using fat as your primary fuel source, and um, I would uh, kind of supplement those podcasts with uh, looking at some of the studies and the research and things like that, and uh, the writings that they would refer to in the in the podcast. So um, that kind of had me like convinced that to, to, to give it a, to give it a try. Um, and like I was saying before, I've always been kind of like a curious uh, person who likes to kind of like tinker with things with that in that of that sort. So um, I wasn't I wasn't like afraid to to try and see what happened. I you know my thought was if it this does if this doesn't work then I'll just stop. Um, so I kind of started out by just kind of flipping it on its head. Where previously I was eating a high carb diet, where it was pretty typical of what you'd probably see when you were in college, where you know runners are eating somewhere between like sixty seventy percent of their intake from carbohydrates. You know they maybe are getting like ten to twenty and the rest protein. Uh, so I kind of flipped the carbs and the fat on their head. So uh, I was eating more or less 60 to 70 percent of my intake from fat, um, and then like l- much lower carbohydrate, like 10 to 20 percent, and then the rest from protein. And um, I didn't notice any performance benefits right out of the gate, but I noticed right away I was sleeping way better. My energy levels were way more consistent. I didn't have those big energy swings throughout the day. Um, like the inflammation I was seeing, like in my ankles and um, things like that, were started to go away. Um, and I noticed all that stuff like pretty quick, like within the first couple of weeks. So, um, I was trying to be smart about it. So I didn't go and try to do like my biggest training block in the middle of this kind of metabolic switch because I knew that like kind of adding that stressor on top of what was already there would likely kind of ruin the experiment. So, uh, I did, I definitely kept running, but I was just doing all kind of base, like low intensity stuff. Um, and then after about four weeks, I kind of noticed that. Um, those runs started to renormalize back to where they were before. Um, cause in that first, like 
four weeks or so, I would notice that like I'd have a good run and then I'd have another one where I felt like I was running like a seven minute mile, but I was actually running like an eight minute mile. So it was definitely my body was kind of fighting to flip that metabolic switch. Um, but once it did, it was, uh, it was like smooth sailing kind of from there. And, and ever since then, I've kind of just kind of tried to tweak it so that it's, um, really specific to what I'm doing at the time. Uh, the, I always explain to people, you know, a lot of times folks will be interested in the high fat diet and they'll wonder why I don't do the same thing every day. And the way I explained it is if I were doing the same thing every day all year, then I would eat the same way. But like for me, when I'm in peak training, that looks a lot different than when I'm like in a recovery phase or like a base building phase um, or a taper. So I try to match my macronutrients and the kind of the foods I eat uh, to match that part of my uh, part of my program. Um, and I, uh, I I usually do that by going like really kind of strict low carb ketogenic level. Um, during those really kind of recovery phases, really low intensity, lower volume phases. And then as I get into kind of the higher volume phases, I start to bring a little bit of the carbohydrates back. And, you know, it's still very low. Like at that point, it's probably like 10, 10%, maybe 15. Um, and then once I kind of peak volume and start adding intensity, then I'll let my carbs get up to their the absolute highest that they ever get throughout the year. And that usually tends to be kind of in the 20 to 30% window. Um, and I try to be strategic about that because I don't necessarily want to be taking in that many carbs on a daily basis throughout an intense training block. So, uh, like most periodized training blocks, you'll have like, you know, a couple of weeks of a build up and then kind of a deload week. So I'll go back to really low ketogenic, low carbohydrates during the deload weeks, um, to kind of continue to remind my body that fat is still the primary fuel source, um, and then I kind of do that again when I start to taper, uh, because then I'm kind of scaling back on things again as well. And that tended to work really well for me in terms of being as fat adapted as I need to be, but not necessarily sacrificing my body's ability to use like the high octane energy source like glycogen and carbon. Hey, so w- w- one question I wanted to ask you. So when you're running with these guys in D3, I mean, now that they hear what you're up to, like, what, what's their reaction? Are they like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of my buddies from college are you know, we stay in touch as, as well as we can. I mean I live out in California now, so I'm a little further away from, from most of them. But uh you know, they're always excited to kinda kinda see how how things went and stuff and you know, it's like any college program too, some guys on the on the team kinda kept going after it afterwards and are running some pretty impressive like marathon type races and like shorter races and stuff like that. But they're yeah. definitely always interested to kind of see the hows and whys with uh, some of the ultra running stuff that I've been doing. Yeah. Well, what were your times in college? Like, were you uh, like on track? Were you like a 5K, 10K? Yeah, I was a 5K, 10K. Um, you know, I was kind of like in the, the mid 15s for the 5K and like, uh, in like the mid to low 32s for the 10k. Nice. Um, yeah. So it was uh, you know, usually about enough to maybe get me on the, to the conference meet. But outside of that, uh, that was usually about all the further I would I would get um, with uh, with uh, advancing in terms of like regionals, nationals, and that stuff. Yeah. When you're doing like 32s for 10k, I mean, 
did you have like you know a teammate or two who were doing 31 and you know you're trying to catch up and now you look at them and you're like what's up right i mean <laughs> is there any do you have any like rivals like that 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 you know cuz a lot of guys i know 5 years out of college 6 years out of college stop running or or if they keep it up it's hard to maintain that level of fitness much less improve it you know by by that kind of degree yeah it, you know i've definitely got some talented buddies who don't run anymore and that's a, that's you know it is what it is i think you know people uh people get well, you know life happens and you you decide kind of where you want to focus your energies on and uh you know some of them decided that they got enough of that from college and high school and are, you know, having families and starting careers and things like that. And that's more important to them, which is totally cool. But, you know, some p- part of me always does kind of wonder, like, you know, if I had that kind of speed, <laughs> you know, you, you always wonder, like, what what would happen if, uh, if they would have just kind of kept going after it and, you know, push as hard as they could into their 30s and see how fast they actually could get. And I think some of it is a little discouraging for like you know a, a top level division three runner where like you know you might end up getting really good and not ever like having it like i guess pay the bills and then you probably ask yourself like what's the point you know in terms of like trying to decide what you want to do with your life and stuff like that so unless you really can kind of continue to look at it as a as a hobby and a passion then you know it's probably kind of easy to put on the wayside um, yeah. And I, I, a lot of guys, they, they really like that kind of team atmosphere and, um, you know, that's what kind of motivates them to be with the group and stuff. And then when they you know, get done with college, and it's like that's not there anymore. So then it's like now you're left to your own yeah. uh, kind of training and stuff. And, you know, sure, you can you can join some, some clubs and things like that sometimes, but usually that's not like, you know, a daily practice. Uh, type of thing, a weekly meet, and you know that type of Perfect. stuff. So, um, I think it does range a bit from the person to person. No, I get you, man. So I, I was a middle of the pack D three runner. I, I, you know, I ran like twenty six for eight k. I ran maybe four thirty for the mile, and then and then four years out of school, it's like I couldn't. I was having a hard time training, and I put on probably twenty pounds, and you know, I was working out, but it wasn't enough. And then about a year ago, I got really into uh, the keto diet and and uh, and triathlons, and, and I've had like a resurgence, and um, that's a big part of my interest now is like how people are able to to use this diet and combine it with endurance training to accomplish things like you've done. So, yeah, I mean, I, I totally, uh, you know, I can empathize with like both sides of it for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting, and you know, I've got plenty of buddies too who kind of kept going at it, and some of them are like PRing and in like 5K and a marathon type stuff, like in their late 20s, early 30s, and that's always cool to see too. The, um, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say that. Like, I always wonder sometimes, well, what if I would have just, you know, put more energy into that? How how fast could I have gotten at those times? And, um, ultimately, it's you know, I I don't beat myself up over it because I know I would have never been fast enough to really compete at like you know a national or international level at that. And with ultra running, I've certainly had those opportunities to race internationally and stuff like that. So um, yeah. it's 
it's kind of just one of those things where you, you there's so many options you got to pick one eventually. I mean, a world record is a world record. It doesn't really get much more impressive than that. So tell me about your training. What what's your training like in terms of how many miles per week and and how fast? Yeah, um, I I I kind of periodize my training a little bit, but I definitely follow uh, like a high volume approach. Um, hey, what was the first part you said? You kind of what you're training? Oh, I definitely kind of periodize my training. Um, it, yeah, yeah, it broke up. What's what's the adjective? What's the word? Uh, periodize. Periodize. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So, um, so I uh, definitely like follow what I would call like a high mileage type of a philosophy or approach, where you know I'm I'm typically averaging into the hundred miles per week, you know, throughout the year. You know, there's weeks that's well under a hundred, but there's there's also ones that are well above it. So, at the end of the year, usually I've got you know if I'm injury free, um, you know, like five thousand to five thousand five hundred mile range and um that uh that seems to be what kind of works for me like just being able to you know it's, it's interesting to look some some guys tend to do it seems like anyway tend to do better with a little more speed work and a little less volume whereas other guys and gals kind of like can uh they increase that volume and they kind of find a new level so for me it's always been pretty easy to recover and pretty easy to stay injury free even with with pretty high volume um but, you know, I, I definitely kind of structure it so that I'm peaking for a specific race. So I usually start the early stages of training just kind of building a volume or developing what I want, like to call like my a strong aerobic base. Um, and by doing that, I, I, pay a, I pay quite a bit of attention to like heart rate and like perceived effort. So as I'm kind of building up my miles and my base, I'm kind of trying to run quite a few quite a bit of it at like a heart rate of like 145 to 150 um, or like a perceived effort of what I'd say like, you know, three or three out of four out of 10. Um, and then uh, what I notice when I'm doing that as I'm kind of developing that aerobic base, my pace at those efforts or heart rate zones will start to kind of continually drop. Um, and then once that kind of plateaus, I, I assume I've really like maximize my aerobic base and then that's when I'll start bringing in some some types of speed workouts which for most ultra marathons tend to be heavy on like tempo runs progression runs long interval sessions and things like that um but then you know I will do some shorter interval sessions from time to time too just to kind of like work on staying really really uh um really really uh mechanically sound I guess or uh um, keeping just like that running, that running form and running motion really tight. So I do feel like doing some of that speed work definitely helps with that type of efficiency. Um, yeah, and then you know I'll I'll typically do a, a t depending on the race. Like a lot of times, if I'll try to um, do a couple ultra marathons before it, just as like training races. But I'll definitely I'll, I'll have to try to keep the governor on a little bit for those just because like I don't want to end up making a training race my uh you know if you go to the well in a training race that usually doesn't yeah. go well for your a race um and you know that, that can be anything from like 50k up to 100k usually um 
and then uh, tapering, it's uh, I tend to do a little better historically with more of a like a reverse taper where I'm not necessarily taking like two to three weeks where I'm doing very little of anything, but rather giving myself like three weeks where I'm taking longer breaks between hard sessions, but kind of keeping a couple hard sessions in there just to keep that spear kind of sharp, so to speak. Um, and then, yeah, then race and repeat, I guess. Uh, usually the way I do a lot of scheduling is I try to pick an A race uh, in the first half of the year and then an A race in the second half of the year and um, then kind of fill the gaps with some of those uh, kind of B-level races where, like I said, there'll be like really good workouts but not necessarily like make me need to take weeks to recover from. Um, so after the A races is when I'll usually give myself a little more time where I'll you know, block out two plus weeks where I don't necessarily have to run or if I do run, it's very unstructured. Um, and that kind of serves as like the off season, I guess. Gotcha. And and do you train with anyone? Um, you know, not not a lot. I do most of my stuff on my own. Um, I do meet up with some groups every once in a while that are like um, in the area. And, but it's, it's the last few years I've been kind of relocating quite a bit. So like, it seems like every time I find like a a group or something like that, then I've moved and uh, had to kind of restart that process. But, um, yeah, I, I like running with people, and especially with some of those speed workouts. It's great to have a partner, and um, I definitely try to um, meet up with, uh, with like, groups of runners, whether it's for a structured workout or run or just to kind of hang out to kind of keep that um, – uh, just to kind of stay stay involved in the running community outside of just kind of like completely hermiting myself and training on my own and stuff like that. Gotcha. So let's talk about so during the race itself, when you're in like hundreds of laps around the track and you're doing it hard and it's you know hours of just pain and and monotony. What what do you do anything like before or during in terms of uh, meditation or a certain mantra or how like what, how do you get in the mindset? Yeah, you know, the track is super unique. Um, you know, I think it's it's interesting because, like, ultramarathoning is considered one sport, but there's events that couldn't be any different from one another, any more different than one another. Um, and the track is certainly one of those kind of, uh, like, outside or, like, you know, far-reaching fringe-ish type ones. And um, the way I kind of describe it is, like if I'm doing a race like in the mountains or on the trails or point to point hundred miler, I'm trying to stay kind of in the moment and trying to like you know, just like uh like enjoy the process or enjoy the environment I'm in. Whereas when you're on the track, you kind of want to do whatever you can to separate yourself from the environment because if you think too much about just the constant four hundred meter loops, it can get kind of overwhelming, and then you find yourself getting negative and having like like massive mental hurdles to try to get over so like what i'll do for that is i'll try to like um you know i'll try to like i guess like meditate or like zone out or get into kind of a flow state is probably the best way to look at it where you don't necessarily recognize that you're running on a track but you definitely pay attention to your running you like like listen to your body you 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 pretend where you that you're somewhere else like i'll like to i like to try to like pretend I'm running like a route that I'm used to at home and just picture where I would be at that at any given distance during a segment of the race. 
Um, and, you know, it's also a good time to kind of reflect on, like, the training plan and the stuff that uh, that got you to the race because, you know, the, the races, even the long ones, are relatively short when compared to the, the build-up to it. So that's usually a good time, uh, especially when you start to get, like, a little – a little negative is to kind of think about how much work you did to get there in the first place. And then it makes you a little more, I think, prone to keep pushing when, when, uh, the going gets a little tougher. Yeah. It's interesting that you use a difference between like mountain trail running. So like, I'm because there's so much stuff to look at and be a part of, like it's, you know, there's obstacles. You want to be in the moment, enjoy the process, being present. But then on the track, you're saying it's easier just to disconnect and zone out and get in that flow state. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's it's interesting because depending on what your goal is there, like, you know, usually when I'm there, I'm targeting a fairly specific uh, time goal. So I'm, I am I come in with, like, a, a lap range of, like, how fast I want to be doing doing the laps. And, and uh, usually what I'll do is I'll, I'll spot check it because most of the, these events have, like, a uh, timing chip mat, so you see on the screen like how far you are, how fast your lap was, and all that stuff. Anything you really want. Um, so I'll spot check every once in a while just to make sure I'm in the range I'm looking for. And if that's if that's true, then I just kind of like tune in. Where it gets kind of hard is near the end. Usually it's like about the last 20% or so where um, you tend to be going a lot slower than you think you are. So it's a little harder to zone out, and you have to kind of hyper focus a little more on individual laps. Um, which you can imagine makes it feel like it's a lot longer than it really is. So the last 20 to 30 miles is more like half the race than it is like a quarter of the race. Gotcha. And gotcha. Do you, do you meditate at all? Like, uh, outside of racing? Uh, I don't, I don't like, I guess, uh, like kind of meditate in a structured manner. Um, I do a fair bit of driving for, for work and stuff. So like I, I tend to kind of, I, I wouldn't say I zone out when I'm driving, but um, I definitely, like, try to relax and practice, like, uh, mindfulness and, like, deep breathing and stuff like that when I'm in a position where I'm kind of stuck sitting for a long period of time. And yeah. I I don't know what, like, a true, uh, like, meditative expert would say about that in terms of whether it's proper meditating or not, but I like to think it helps. So that's kind of um, where I get that again. And, you know, sometimes, too, it's just, like, you're doing a – really long like easy run that's somewhat unstructured it can be pretty relaxing uh mentally too so i feel like that is similar to to meditating yeah yeah and what do you do for work how do you have time to work and do all this running yeah i do a, a few things um i guess uh you know i'm the type of type of person who likes to do a variety of things for like 15 to 20 hours a week rather than one thing for like 40 to 50 hours a week so Awesome. Um, yeah, I, do, uh, uh, I have an online coaching, um, which is one of my, one of my jobs, uh, mostly individual online. Um, then I do, I actually, one of my main sponsors, Ultra Footwear, uh, also employs me as like a, uh, marketing rep and like an events coordinator type. Uh, so I'll do like, uh, I'll put on like running clinics and things like that in the Northern California area, um, for them. And uh, kind of like the coaching, that's kind of like part-time. Um, and then the athlete side of things, too. So it's kind of, I guess, a, three, a three-pronged a occupation. All pretty much running-related, though. Awesome. Awesome. 
So, Zach, you've you set a world record, you've an American record, and you've established yourself as one of the, you know, prominent male American ultra marathoners. What what's next? Do you have do you have a further goal, another record you're trying to achieve, or another uh, a certain goal on the horizon? Yeah. So I'm trying to uh, do a little bit of um, a little bit of a diversifying, I guess. Uh, you know, since I've done a lot of flat faster type ultras in the last few years um you know, the first half of the year i'm going to try to maybe focus on a little more uh focus a little more on some of the trails or some of the more mountainous courses um so i'm actually going to be doing a race at the end of january called the hong kong 100k and it's part of a, a program called the ultra trail world tour where um they try to get some of the kind of top athletes to race in places that are kind of farther away from their home that they maybe wouldn't go to otherwise. Um, so I got invited to do that. So I'll do that one. Um, and then I haven't completely put it in stone yet for the training or for my racing season, but I think I'll probably also do Lake Sonoma 50 mile, which is kind of like, I guess the best way to describe that one is it's death by a thousand paper cuts. There's uh-huh. like, there's like a bunch of just kind of really small rolling climbs and descents the whole way. You're like never running flat, but you're also never, um, you're never, uh, running up a, like a really, really long, like two, three mile ascent or descent either. Um, and that's a, that's actually a Western States golden ticket race. So if you finish in the top two there, you can, um, get into the Western States 100, which is, um, easily the most competitive 100-miler in the United States. Uh, so if I would happen to have a good day there and get in the top two, I would uh, probably do Western States uh, as a result. Um, and that would be the first half of the year. Uh, this year is uh, an, uh, an even-numbered year, so that means World 100K Championships are going to be held um, in Croatia. So if I get on that team, I'll, I'll definitely target that as kind of like a fall type race um and then i think i'll stay try to stay kind of on the whole flat fast track since most of my training for world 100ks would kind of put me in a good position for that and do there's there's a race uh out in um illinois called the tunnel hill 100 which is a really really flat fast road and uh me and one of my buddies uh pat Reagan, who's also done really well as the last couple of years on flatter fast ultra marathons we're kind of hoping to go out there and see how fast we can can do that one awesome awesome um so a lot a lot coming up if if, if there was one record you're, you you'd be chasing after or you'd want what would it be uh i would say at the moment definitely the 100 mile world record that's one i've kind of carved out a bit of time for the last few years and fallen just short of so it's it's definitely i guess in the most immediate time that would be the one but in terms of like a career goal i think one of the most stout ultra running records is the 24 hour world record which is how far you can run in 24 hours and there's a guy named Giannis curis who's kind of uh, regarded as the best timed event runner ultra marathon runner ever and he holds that record at 188 miles i think it's 188 points seven or something right around there um and you know that's like averaging 730 pace for 24 hours so 
Uh, that one, I think, would be the coolest one to break. <laughs> that would be a, a tall task, but I hope to take a few swings at it at some point. Um, I think as I get a little bit older, I'm, I'm 31 now, but as I get closer to 40, I'll start focusing more on 24 hours and less on, like, fast 100-mile. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's one I definitely like to to target in the future. Yeah, I was going to say, the good thing about endurance running, unlike sprinting or even something like middle distance, is you know, the the best guys are, are late 30s, right? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because it has, the sport has grown quite a bit the last five years in terms of, like, fast kind of track cross-country guys coming into the sport, fast marathoners. So we are seeing a little bit more of uh, at least winning times and rec- course records being set by uh, guys in their 20s. Um, but, you know, especially when you get to the 100-mile distance, it seems to be... Uh, enough of an experience-based event that it does, there are some things that uh, bode well for guys who've been doing it for a while and in their 30s or even 40s in some scenarios. Yeah. And I mean, optimally, like the, like it seems like the human body doesn't peak in terms of endurance until, you know, you look at the marathon world record holder, guys like that, they're, they're mid to late 30s. I think you, you still got some time. Yeah, right? for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Um. Uh, yeah. So that's. I mean, I, re- I really, I really appreciate all of this, Zach. Um, it's really, uh, it's really, it's, it's really great to be able to talk to you. Um. So earlier, you mentioned you, you've spoken with uh, Jeff Bolek, who's an MD, and also uh, Finia. These are two doctors that that knew a lot about the diet. Yeah. Yeah. They are. Uh, they're the guys who I would say are kind of at the forefront of kind of the resurgence. Um, in fact, uh, Dr. Finney has been kind of been talking about it quite a bit. Even I think in the late 80s, he did some studies on cyclists. And, um, you know, obviously back then, uh, you know, he's probably met with a lot of skepticism and laughed out of some conference rooms. But uh, um, he's stuck with it and kind of continued to um, push that, that – uh, um, that that agenda or that message, um, and, and Dr. Volick, who's um, currently at the University of Ohio, um, has been huge in kind of looking at it and from multiple different lenses. I think his primary focus is for health. Uh, you know, he's worked a lot with uh, folks with type two diabetes, like epileptic seizures and things like that. But he's also was uh, a you know by or a power lifter back um, when he was a little younger, so he uh, is interested in athletics and thinking and and the role that you know a fat-based diet has to do with that. So those guys have been huge in in my ability to kind of wrap my head around the science and the numbers and things like that. And you know, listening to other guys too have been kind of at the forefront, like Dom- Dr. Dominic D'Agostino has been pretty. Uh, in the news, I guess, in terms of uh, an advocate for a high-fat approach and really yeah. kind of looking at what it can do and looking at how the science fits into it all, um, as well as, uh, you know, like I think like Atkins has made a bit of a resurgence uh, from their their original message where they were, really, they were always really low-carb, but they've kind of uh, used, they've been working with Dr. Bollock in the and I. I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think Dr. Dominic Diaz-Dino as well to kind of help develop a more like a, a kind of a new Atkins approach, which is 
still very much low carb, but uh, um, also kind of structured around what I was explaining earlier, where like lifestyle can play a big role in it. You're, the time that you're you've done it can play a big role in it and stuff like that too. So it gives you kind of like you know options and starting points as opposed to just saying like okay, cut all the carbs out of your diet or here's a product, buy this and eat this and it'll work type right. of message. Um, right. So that's cool to see some of that stuff happen too. Yeah, yeah, and I, I actually I talked to Dom uh, a couple of days ago about some of this too. Seems like it really is uh, a resurgence, and people are finally embracing this high fat style of diet. So I'd, I'd love to connect with Jeff and Dr. Finney. Do, do you recommend like just e- emailing them or? Yeah, um, uh, Dr. Volick definitely um, will. Uh, if like if you can pin him down, he would. He's a great interview. Dr. Finney, I think, is a little more in the lab, but I'm sure he'd be happy. He, he does guest talks and stuff, so I'm sure he'd be happy to chat with you um, about what he's up to these days. Um, but, yeah, both are great great guys, and they'll definitely be able to kind of dive into the numbers and the science of probably a little more detail than I can. Um, so, yeah. uh, Awesome. Well, yeah, Zach, man, I, I really appreciate, like, all the time, you know, taking both calls with me and answering all these questions, and it's really cool. Like, I'm, I'm a big fan of yours, and um, I wish you luck at all these races you're doing and in the that 24-hour one. I mean, that seems, like, really painful, 730-mile pace <laughs> for 24 hours.